if you don't have those, you know, because of you, you don't identify as any of these genders, what you're saying is, I don't identify with the expectations that society has placed on me. I am breaking these soul contracts that have existed for thousands of years, and I am creating something new. Exactly. And so, of course, that is going to create a lot of resistance because people are like, oh, no, what do you mean? You're just a boy and you're a girl. It's like, it should just be that. It should just be black and white. That's all people are saying. Let's just be okay in our black, white thinking. You got to accentuate the positive. Wow! I feel good. A little bit of feel good goes a long way. You're listening to Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation, accentuating the positive, showing you a way to a better life. Accentuating the positive, it's not just bad, it's sanity. Who in their right mind would accentuate anything else? If you feel like that's what you want to do. Welcome to another show, Accentuating the Positive with Karen Swain. Always beautiful to be with you all again. Well, we're going to go into family and soul contracts today and hear an amazing story with the wonderful Johnson Chong. Welcome to the show, Johnson. Thank you, Karen, for having me here on your show. So I found Johnson through Karen Johnson all these Johnsons. <laughs> Karen, <laughs> Karen, I've had on the show, I had a beautiful conversation with Karen, who was a judge. And then uh, it was the death of her daughter. I can't remember her story now. It's not that long ago. Death of her son, wasn't it? Yes, death of her son right. woke her up and put her on her spiritual path. Uh, you know, she was like totally into the mainstream and um yeah, now she calls herself a shaman. It's wonderful. And so she reached out to me and, and when I was Googling her to listen to a bit of her story, I found Johnson. I found her talking to Johnson. And I'm like, God, this guy's in Australia. And I thought, I found your story fascinating. How did you meet Karen? We are actually of the same lineage. We both have Dr. Alberto Violdo as one of our teachers. And so oh. that's how we have that connection. And she is also a shaman. I am a shaman. And I've been initiated into various lineages. The lineage that we share in common are from the Caro people, who are the healers of the high Andes in Peru. And that's that's how I know Karen. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. And then you're Karen. So we have the Karen, the Karen, the Johnsons. The Johnsons, the Karens, the Karens. I know. Fabulous. And please remember, if you're liking the shows, to share, share, share and subscribe and leave a comment. Press that like button and all that good stuff. Press the bell button if you're listening on YouTube. But if you're listening on other platforms, love you to leave a comment. I haven't been getting a lot of comment on the other platforms that I'm um, podcasting, video casting on these days. But let me tell you a little bit about Johnson, and then we'll get into your story. Johnson Chong's passion is creating bridges between ancient wisdom, energy medicine, and direct modern application. Born to refugees escaping persecution from a communist regime in China, Johnson grew up culturally confused in the melting pot of New York City. A young gay boy instilled in Confucianism, principles led to even more confusion. Now living in Australia, Johnson helps people create more transparency within their unhealthy family dynamics. As an educator, Johnson volunteers and shares with the LGBTQ plus groups <laughs> and general audiences <laughs> to take a deep look into unspoken familial contracts and expectations to create boundaries so people can live more in their authentic expression. 
Okay, here's where I'm going to get confused. It's Pango Shaman, right? Pango, is that how you say? Paco. 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 Oh, it's a Q. Paco Shaman. And here's another word I, I don't think. Curo lineage. You said it. Caro. Caro lineage. Yeah. So Paco Shaman from the Caro lineage, a four wins energy medicine health coach, inner guide TM coach and Reiki master in conjunction with his background as a yoga and Pilates teacher. Johnson has an extensive knowledge of the physical body and how the psyche can create stagnation on all levels, physical, mental, emotional, and energetic. Best-selling author of Sage Sapium from Karma to Dharma. Johnson spoke at TEDx about how to deal with toxic family relationships. Founder of Sage Shamanic Yoga Retreats and Training, Johnson trains aspiring meditation and breathwork teachers. You can find him at johnsonchong.com. Well, your um, family story sounds amazing. Do you want to tell us about your parents and what they went through to arrive in New York? Sure. Well, I didn't really know my family story until I was yelled at and scolded. <laughs> and oftentimes it came from this place of you should feel guilty, right? And so over the years of growing up as a gay Chinese boy in New York City, I started to piece together what my parents went through. And they are not the type of people to, to share very deeply what what happened but in moments where they had a melting pot uh, or not a melting pot but a melting point where they could no longer hold it in that's when i would hear bits and pieces and so i grew up in new york city i was born in new york city actually and my my mom and my dad came over because of being from land owning families and also um, they experienced lots of violence in their villages. And at, at that point in time, when communism took over China, they created what was known as enemies of the state. And so people who were from educated families or people from land-owning families, even if you yourself are a child and you come from that line, you are, you're, you're an enemy of the state. And they kind of pitted people against each other, cousins on cousins, because a lot of the, the villages that people grew up in were, they were like clans. And so my father lived in the Chong clan and my, my mom lived in the Lee clan and, and they came from these different villages. However, they did come from a line of judges and ministers and people who owned land. And in order to keep the the communist government or or their principles intact they had to make sure that there was an enemy and so you turn people on other people right and so my dad used to have to walk around with a placard like kind of like a sandwich board or something that was strung around his neck that basically like the scarlet letter you know remember that book the scarlet letter and, and there was that big um mark that they were branded around town and so my father was branded around town is up. And so everyone knew that that's who you would throw stones at. And so they had to escape. Uh, and so that that's a whole long drawn out dramatic story. However, you know, they, they ended up swimming to Hong Kong because they were arrested uh, several times. My dad was arrested a few more times than my mom. And they were put in contact with each other through 
other family members who happened to know each other in Hong Kong. And so there were six of them. And they had this very long, arduous journey where they they knew it was a make it or break it moment. And there was no more trying to pay your way as a boat person. Because another way that people went across, and it was a very common way also in, in Vietnam, was to pay for a safe passage on a boat to a, a country that you could receive, you know, harbor in. And Hong Kong was under uh, the UK protection at that time. And so a lot of people were fleeing to Hong Kong. And actually, there was an article that came out recently about all of these people, they call them freedom swimmers, uh, hundreds of 1000s of people who are now in their 70s to 80s, who live in Hong Kong, they they were forced to leave. Um, China at that time. And so that's what my my parents did. They swam. And there's this body of water between China and Hong Kong that it's a big challenge and you just let the current drag you. And and it was a very uh, trying time for them. And so they spent some time in Hong Kong and had to recreate new identities. And they lived in fear that if uh, Hong Kong went back to China, that they would also incur the wrath of, of China having escaped. So they ended up filing for refugee status and went to America. So that that's my parents' story in a nutshell. And then my siblings and I were born after that. It was my brother, then me, I'm the middle child, and then my sister. And so I grew up speaking Chinese first, actually, even though I was born in America, I speak Cantonese. And then I learned English in, in preschool. And I was very, very culturally confused because my parents were very adamant about maintaining their culture and their language, making sure that we went to Sunday school to learn to read and write and speak Chinese, because, you know, they, they didn't necessarily want to be in America. They it was for survival. So this was where a lot of my cultural confusion started to happen. <laughs> Yes. So you were confused. You, you went to school and they were speaking a different language and um, kind of unpack that more for us. So as you were growing up. I just felt very different and I knew I was very different first on that cultural level, because, you know, like in, in Sydney is very similar to New York City in that it's a melting pot. There's many different cultures. You have immigrant populations. And so I would hear people speaking Spanish. I heard Jamaican accents, you know, Brooklyn is a very rich and diverse place, culturally speaking. I remember being very confused. And so I was very quiet for most of my, my first four years, first five years of life, because I didn't know what was happening with sound. People were expressing themselves in different ways. So I got very observant while I was very quiet because I was afraid to speak. I only really spoke at home. And it wasn't until preschool and kindergarten that I started to, to learn English. And it took me a good two, three years before I started to raise my hands and speak out in class because I, I was afraid. And communication was definitely one of these uh, fears I had of, of not being received properly. And then also I started to feel strange in the sense that I knew I was queer at a young age, around four or five, I knew I, I liked boys. It wasn't a sexual thing. I just knew there was something that I, I put on my mom's high heel shoes. I put on her lipstick. I I was doing all these, these things that 
boys don't do, right? I, I remember watching a soap opera and I started mimicking what the ladies were doing. And I started, you know how people hug themselves and they start making out with themselves and you learn that in school. Well, I started doing that and role-playing when I was watching these soap operas at the age of five, which is, <laughs> so I knew I was stranger than most boys. And so growing up, I had a series of incidents where I remember that it wasn't safe to be me. I remember, oh, being gay is wrong. It's bad. It's, it's not right. And I had to hide a lot of my behaviors. And so that's where a lot of the suppression began at a young age. So when did you start having issues with your parents about, you know, your lifestyle versus their, their lifestyle? Because this is such a common story for so many people, uh, such a common story in many families. It doesn't have to be, you know, because you're gay or different cultures. It's like generations have different ideas about how they want to do life, right? <laughs> and then we clash but yeah go on well there were so many layers to it one was being a boy in a traditional chinese household there were certain things you were expected to do we had to be the breadwinner eventually so you're trained at a young age that you have to provide for the family and that there's certain qualities you have to adapt or adopt as a boy growing up and we had to learn about certain values and principles and and how chinese people learn this is through recitation so when you go to chinese school on, on sunday morning similar to how i think in christian school you recite verses from the bible you have to recite certain moral codes of conduct and so you learn about confucius you learn about Lao Tzu, right? And you recite it as this, you know, five, six, seven-year-old, and you don't really know what you're reciting, but you're kind of ingraining these principles in your head. And so I knew that the, the, the pressure of expectation was always there. And then I had these moments in life where I used to role play with my sister. We would, I would play with her dolls. You know, she had Barbie dolls and, and, and we would play Baywatch together. And I, I would dress up and put on her swimsuits and, and I would pretend to be one of the female lifeguards and I would go run and save her. And I did all these things. And my mom caught me a few times. And I think my mom's very good at denying that she saw something happen. So she never really told my dad. She just, you know, she gave me a good spanking. You know, my mom was quite physical with um, <laughs> us growing up. And we just put it aside. And I think that happened many, many times where, where I knew like, oh, I, I should not be doing this. And then the one big thing that caused a bit of a meltdown, and that's when I really, really shut down, was when I was 10 or 11, and my mom found a scrapbook full of all of these male models that I had cut out. And it was in this you know, those white marble notebooks you had as a kid. And I, I glued them onto all these pages because all the other, I saw all the other girls doing it. I remember copying a lot of what the other girls in my class were doing. And I wondered, why don't the boys have scrapbooks and a collage? I mean, this is fun. I really enjoyed this process of, of cutting things out and gluing them on paper. And there was something that really attracted me to the male physique. And I don't know why that was, but it was just something that, caught my eye, right? And she found it. And that was no good. She took me to the <laughs> guidance counselor's office. 
She had a translator there and they began the process of interrogating me. My mom, my mom raised her voice. She was quite loud and verbal about the whole situation. She accused the school of, of teaching us to be perverts. And she asked the schools if the teachers were perverts. She asked if anyone molested me. And, you know, she was, she was asking all of these, these, these questions and, she was wondering if something had happened to me and of course and nothing had actually happened to me but she just could not believe that western education was turning me into this this little homosexual and they kept asking me do you like boys do you like boys are you homosexual and i remember sitting there with my arms crossed and i answered no to every single question because i knew that if i said yes that it would not be safe for me at home, right? So that was the point in time since we're talking about soul contracts and family contracts, I made a contract. I remember the only way I got through that 40 minute ordeal in the guidance counselor office. And you know, at that age, it does feel like an infinity. I said to myself and to my soul, I will not reveal to my to anyone around me who I really am because it's not safe. I remember doing that energetically everything closed off and I shut down and so from that moment on I went through most of my adolescent and teenage years being this lone wolf I didn't really have a lot of close friends until high school I started to slowly let people in because it didn't feel safe because I knew that I would get hit I'd get verbally attacked and abused and all of this stuff right when did it feel safe like did, did and when you left home like when you grew up and left home it felt safer and safer as I started to explore communication through theater. Uh, in high school, I you know, joined the theater club and I felt the most seen there. I was able to express myself there. And I think that's where the appeal of theater is for a lot of children, whether they're queer or not, uh, particularly for queer children. It's it's such a wonderful outlet to explore yourself through different characters because I wasn't allowed to express myself at home. And so it felt like I was leading this double life because at home I had to be a certain way. And then at school, when we had theater productions, I got to play and dance and and sing and do all these things that I, I it was... Um, a bit more restrictive in how I had to be this boy, right? And I started to get more courage, I think, through theater. And I knew that I had to go to university away from home. I knew that I could not be in the New York City area because that would mean I would live at home. I had to find a university that enabled me to be on campus because of just distance. And so that was my plan. And, and so that's what I did. <laughs> I got away from home. And that's when I really started to explore myself was in, in college, university. And that's when I felt safer. And what were some of the conversations that you were having with your parents at this time? My parents and I would talk a lot about education and school and, you know, very, it wasn't very emotionally deep conversations. My parents if we look at the Maslowian hierarchy of needs and, and base needs on the pyramid, so we have the five, the five needs and then the fifth one being self-actualization. So the base needs on the pyramid are food, water, shelter. And then you have safety needs there after that. You know, do, do you feel safe physically or mentally, emotionally? And my parents pretty much operate on that level two of, of, of the pyramid. So they were 
very concerned about making sure we had food, water, shelter, and that we survived. Beyond that, belonging, which was the next uh, phase up on the pyramid, we didn't really have conversations about that. Any emotionally connected conversations were not in our repertoire of, <laughs> it just wasn't happening. Because it makes sense. You know, I learned over time that my parents had a very traumatic life. And so even in America, where they were safer compared to where they were in China, they did not feel safe still because they had not processed a lot of what had happened to them. So I, that's all we really talked about was education. What do you want to be? You should be this. <laughs> it was a lot of you shoulds. So my conversations with my parents were less conversations as um, they were more them telling me what I should be doing. They weren't, it was more of a one-sided kind of situation. So coming out to your parents, obviously they were not happy about your lifestyle. Um, I had Paul Selig on the show about five, six years ago. And I remember, do you know who Paul Selig is? He's a channel uh, he's written about, oh, I think, about seven books now, and I call them mandatory reading for anyone on the spiritual journey. American guy. He now lives in Hawaii. But he said he came out twice. He had to come out of the spiritual closet. He said he came out of the gay closet, and then he had to come out of the spiritual closet. He said coming out of the spiritual closet was harder than coming out of the gay closet. <laughs> well, I guess it depends on, you know, who your parents are and what their life well, experience is. <laughs> he, he grew up in New York. Well, he was he was in New York too. He lived in New York until COVID. But um, I think it was just his, um, like his work and everything, because he was a university lecturer and uh, he loved his job, but he had been channeling for like 20 years before he told anybody about it, you know, just a small circle of friends. But yeah, so how did they react to you coming out? And I'd love to know your spiritual journey too. Like when did, when did you awaken to who you are as a shaman and Yes. Yeah, so all of that's kind of woven into this, this wound, right? And the wound of not being able to express myself. And I think a lot of healers and a lot of people who go on a spiritual path, there's this process of composting all the wounds that you experience as a child, as a young adult. And then you have to make a choice. You're at the crossroads and you go, do I go left? Do I go right? Or do I, which way do I go? You have to choose a path. And so you can either choose a path of repression, suppression of all these things are happening, or you can move in a different path. And what happened was, well, I went to theater school and in conservatory, we learned yoga. We learned, we actually had a lady, I remember Forestine Pole. She was very witch-like and she was one of our movement teachers and she would scry with a pendulum in class. And she she, she was working on somatic release of, of the body. And I remember we would sit around and explore the, the physical, the mental, the emotional. And then she would bring in the spiritual element without talking so much about it because we're still in a university setting. And she would do these sessions with us where she would pull people up one-on-one -on -one and demonstrate that trauma can live in certain parts of the body. And she then would begin the process of helping to release that. and some people would go through physical shaking and release of whatever was being pulled through. And at that point in time, I just registered that as a psychosomatic thing. Just, it was purely physical and mental. And then 
when I reflect back on it, actually, that was probably the beginning of the Kundalini awakening process within me, because when I would go through her three hour workshops, right, every week, you know, as a 19 year old, I started to experience a lot of the spinal shaking that would often happen where I would get hot, I would get cold. We were exploring a lot of pelvic movements. And we know from the yogic traditions that that is where a lot of the awakening starts from. That's the gateway. It's the rise of the serpentine energy. And I would go into big emotional releases where I would laugh hysterically and then start crying all of a sudden. And so my body was having this experience releasing all of my childhood stuff that happened to me without me necessarily thinking about it we're in training to be actors and we're in a movement class and the teacher isn't necessarily cueing us to go into a regression of it's not therapy however because that's part of my my physical and mental and emotional experience in life just by going into these these explorations of my body all of that stuff came to. And so I started to become very interested in the other layers of the yoga practice outside of what they were just teaching us in, in conservatory, which was mainly physical, mental. And so I started going to the yoga studios and seeing what they were talking about. And that's when I started to learn about the yoga sutras and all of the deeper layers of yogic philosophy and about meditation and oneness and all of these principles that felt so strange to me. I'm like, what are these principles? And it gave me a different lens to look at how I could live. And I started diving deeper into meditation while I was in university. And from there, I, I became very interested in body work. So I, I looked at Thai yoga massage and, and how touch affects the release of certain things in the body and then Reiki. And then from there, shamanism came naturally. So it became, you know, crystals and all of this stuff. It became, it was like yoga became a gateway, the body and the body's release became a gateway. So all this was happening all in my early twenties. And even, and, and I remember thinking, I have to tell my parents because I can't be doing all of this spiritual work and then hiding myself because I, I I still felt like I was leading two lives. And I remember that pact I made with myself. I'm not going to express myself truly, especially to my parents, because they won't get it. They're going to hurt me. I don't feel safe. But I remember I have to do it. And so at 26, I came out to them. I, even though I, I, I <laughs> and it was very hard. It was super hard. I wrote a letter in Chinese and I dropped it in the mail. And then I went off to India for three months. <laughs> and I thought that was the safest way for me at that time to deal with it because that would give them time to read what I had written. It was very difficult for me to, you know, I, I couldn't imagine myself sitting there and speaking it. It was too difficult. So that was my stepping stone. And so then they had three months to process that. I came back and then we had a chat about it. And they were, I thought they would be a little bit more angry, but they were not. They actually were very sad. They were very disappointed. And then after they got over that, that little hump, they started to uh, send me off to, you know, they, they, they said, you should go see the psychologist to, to fix this. You, you're, you're, you're having a chemical imbalance. You're sick. 
And my, my parents are very into Eastern medicine. So they thought maybe acupuncture might help. They were really open to trying many, many things to quote unquote, fix me because something was clearly wrong with me. And so it was their strange way of showing their love for me by trying to help and correct me. And so in the beginning, I found it comical because I thought, oh, wow, this is totally not the the reaction I I was expecting. I thought it was more disowning you. You're ugh, disgust. I was looking more, I thought it was going to be that. It was this whole other thing. And so that happened and happened for many, many years, actually, for like a decade, really. It just kept going and going, almost as if they could not accept the fact that I had even come out. And so I had to come out many times because my mom would try and set me up with another girl and I had to come out again. So I had multiple, you know, like, this is not acceptable. This is not okay because I've already told you. And so because this behavior kept happening, happening, I really had to distance myself physically because it became so toxic for me to, to live in that field. And this is part of my soul's journey, right? When we're talking about things from a human level. Now, if we were just talking about this on a human level, it would probably feel like, oh my goodness, I feel so sorry for you. But if we zoom way, way out on a soul level, this is exactly what my soul designed for me to, to have these experiences, to have these human obstacles, because it allows me as a practitioner to gain insight into people's suffering, because I can deeply empathize and see when people are holding onto patterns of, of trauma or pain or, or, or little uh, moments of self-suppression that uh, don't allow for the full expression of their soul's energy. And really, any healer, any shaman, whatever you want to call yourself, your goal to working with any client is to help them move their, their expression of love, of divine love, in their unique expression in the most authentic way possible. And how you do that is to help remove certain roadblocks that are in the way. And that's really all we're doing. We're going, oh, hey, did you look over here at this thing with your mother, that thing with your father, that thing over there with, you know, society, you know, all these different patterns, they create energies. And so when we're talking about soul contracts or family contracts, we're looking at the paths that we make as souls through language, through belief systems through behaviors, actions that create repercussions or ripple effect that then affect our energy field, the way we think, the way we act, the way we, you know, live life. And we have to untangle that. And so this is, this is the karmic web that we're trying to get ourselves out of. And so, yeah, my parents did not take it very well, and they still don't take it very well. And because of that, we don't have a very deep relationship. And part of my healing journey is really just accepting that, accepting that they, you know, I, I wanted them to choose me as for me, as I am, but they didn't. They don't choose me as I am. They would rather have me another way. And so I need to learn to choose myself and be okay with that. So that's, that's my journey. <laughs> Oh, it's a big journey, darling one. It's a big journey. And it's a common journey to uh uh for many, for many parents, you know, for many families. As I said, generations think differently. Um 
Yeah, I don't find my generation thinks too differently to my daughters, but definitely I thought very differently to my parents' generation. And uh, there was always conflict there. Um, So what do you think the sole contract between you and your parents is? It's an interesting sole contract. When I've gone into my past life history with my parents now, to those who subscribe to reincarnation or not, you can. If you don't subscribe to reincarnation, that's okay. You can kind of think of these experiences, visuals, past life regressions I've had as a representation of the symbols. They're they're the symbols of what's happening energetically in my psyche. So some people look at past lives like that. Some people, uh, I mean, in the East, we subscribe to reincarnation that souls transmigrate from one body to the other. So it's not that far in a concept to me. And in in the past and in other incarnations, my parents have always been in this servile role where they would wait hand on foot to me and and there was this one lifetime that i write about actually in in my book where my i i had this very strong experience where i was thrown back in time and i was this mongolian princess who and you know nomadic tribes i'm running away from my father because my father wanted me to marry this particular man who for a a political strategic alliance and it was just not the person I was in love with and this is a story that we hear in many cultures (laughs) this is not a foreign thing for for all cultures and so I eloped I ran off and I was on a horse and I was run I was going through with my horse through through the um through the deep forest um somewhere in in the steppes uh, uh very in northern Asia right so the Mongolian Siberian this kind of region and they caught me and they dragged me back. <laughs> they brought me back to the clan and I was punished for it. And during that time, my parents were actually my servants and they 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 really cared for me. They did everything in their power to make sure that I uh, adhered by the rules. They wanted to keep me safe because they loved me. They were under my care. So in that lifetime, they showed their love and care for me by waiting hand on foot. And in this life, they have a bit of that where they they are only happy if I do exactly as I'm, I'm told, right? Um, they live vicariously almost through the things that I do. They, they have, you know, they, they're not ones to socialize a lot. They don't have a lot of things they do outside of their spare time. They're quite hermetic in the way that they live. And so it was very, it's very similar energetically to that lifetime. And also in that lifetime, they were very bound to the traditions and customs of, of the prevailing regime. And in this lifetime, they are also very bound to the customs and traditions of a certain culture, right? So a lot of these themes crossed from that lifetime to this, this lifetime. And I, in many lifetimes that I have experienced a past life story play out in my body, in my mind, in my dreams. I was always running away from that, you know, as a as the fleeing princess, you know, away from what was expected of me, right? Um, and so this is a very common theme. So that was one example that I've experienced in the soul. So my soul is on a journey of constantly breaking away from the status quo. Like that would be the theme and the motto, I would say, of my soul's journey. And 
every person that I encounter who is an obstacle to me running away is actually part of my soul's journey. And so if I zoom out from a very uh, spiritual perspective and look at my life like that, I don't take my parents' rejection of me so seriously. I look at it like, wow, they're playing the most perfect human parts in this obstacle that I'm going through because that's what they were designed for. They were designed to create challenge in my life from a soul perspective so that I can rise up to that challenge. And I think that's where some people get tripped up because they, they, they just stay stuck in the blame thing where like, oh, I blame my parents. I don't blame my parents. I now go, wow, oh my gosh, I love my parents even more, even though we're so separate and I'm so far from them because I have to be. I have great love for them and all the trials and tribulations they had to go through in their life. And, and I think that's, um, that's just how our soul is. And our contract that we have together is that they were really put here on the planet to bring me into this point that I am here today to create so much contrast in my life and so much obstacle to challenge my self-expression so that I could find it again. And that might feel a little bit crazy for some people because they go, oh my God, should it, you know, shouldn't a parent just, there's no shoulds in life, right? You know, shouldn't a parent just love their children for who they are? Yeah, well, if parents were to just love the children for exactly who they are, there would be no, there would be no, no excitement. There would be no diversity in life. We all have these very unique challenges in our lives because we're all a lotus rising from the mud there there needs to be mud or there's no awakening there has to be the mud and everyone has a unique version of their own mud they have to go through yeah we all do absolutely absolutely yeah I have a girlfriend who's my age and she comes from a big catholic family and how many kids six kids and uh one of them's gay. One of them was a spinster for many years and didn't do the get get married and have kids story. One, you know, fell in love and had babies out of wedlock. You know, they're all doing the wrong thing according to the Catholic rules. But I, I remember the her brother, Nick, who came out gay, the father wanted to just completely disown him because he was an upstanding, you know, doctor and um, he had just sort of, anyway. But that all changed, you know, because it's just harder to hate than it is to love. And it's just, you just can't, um, when I say hate, like disagree and reject somebody that you love, especially someone that you've, you know, that's your son that you've brought, you've brought up. And at some point, uh, you know, that dis that disagreement just turns back into love I think it just reverts into love it's just easier to love you as you are than it is to reject you because love is who we all are right love is who our soul is so um how often do you talk to your parents now never or I mean did you I, flee to Australia to get away from them in New York <laughs> well I I went off to India and I went to teach for one of my teachers in an ashram and I left everything in New York even though I was teaching and practicing in New York, it, the, the proximity was too close to my parents because you know they're there. And so I needed that distance. So I took six months off to go to India. And then from there, I ended up getting a teaching job in, in Singapore to teach yoga. And so 
I ended up staying there for a good six years, actually. That's where I met my partner. And then I moved to Australia after that because my partner ended up getting a job transfer. And so life started happening. And I've been away from America almost 10 years now. And every time I go back and visit, it just doesn't feel like home anymore. And I think sometimes physical distance from from a relationship can really bring you clarity and space for you to become who you're meant to become. Because you, I literally don't have the familial types of plugs and hooks that, you know, when, when you're abroad that hold me to certain obligations and expectations. And I think that's why a lot of people leave the nest for what, because they want to feel who they are by themselves first. And sometimes people choose to go back right to their families because they miss them and they're healthy i i love my family i have my brother my sister as well however i also know that my soul is not really meant to be this uh soul that is bound in one place i'm one that travels and i move and and that's really where i feel most alive and that's also something that's not uh, within my parents' vocabulary, they 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 don't understand that they they can stay in the same place for five years and not travel at all. They they're they're homebodies. They don't understand why I don't even want to have children. So my mom has come around a little bit more. She's now resigned. She hasn't accepted. She's more resigned to the fact that she can't change me and that I'm gay. And she actually would like me to have children so does my father his main thing is is the whole masculine pride thing of you know having a effeminate you know son and all that stuff that challenges his own stuff right so that's part of it but also a big part of it is progeny make sure you have children to carry on the family name and because i actually don't want any of those things it's like a triple whammy for them you know it's it's like whoa now, if I wanted children and do all that, they might come around, right? Because now they have this, this other, you know, they'll have the grandchildren, but it's not actually what I want. And so there are a lot of things that I do that they just don't agree or support. They don't support the choice of my career. There's, there's a few things. Um, and so I don't speak to them very often because if, when I do speak to them, I might speak to them every two months or so. And, and it's, it's quite surface in terms of checking in, how are you, you know, this kind of stuff. Because it'll turn into a little bit of a um, yelling match, right? Where my I might get scolded at, and and they'll try to do their whole conversion talk again, and it always comes back to that. And if it gets to that, it's just there's no conversation to be had because this is who I am. Yeah, well, this is a conversation that's happening globally, you know, with difference of opinion since the rollout of a allopathic you know, remedy that has been seen as the saviour for the world's, you know, ails. And some people disagree with that opinion. And so that split families apart in, um, you know, having difference of opinions about a medical procedure and um, and definitely people coming out of the spiritual closet when people come out of the spiritual closet and they say well I'm channeling you know Mother Mary and I'm speaking to aliens and uh, you know like and families go no I just don't understand you so what do you say to people and, and how to reconcile their relationship with their families when they're completely misunderstood when their ideas are different 
Well, I think a lot of it comes to the way in which we're translating to people. We have to meet people at the level of consciousness that they can comprehend, right? So I can talk to a wide array of people, a whole spectrum. I can talk to people who talk to aliens. I can, and I can empathize and listen to them, right? And, and not find them weird because I'm very curious and very open, right? I've had alien experiences too as well, right? Well, darling, I'm just saying you're talking to someone now who talks to aliens. <laughs> right? <laughs> and you and, are totally so galactic. Like that was the right? first thing I, when I saw you on Karen's show, I'm like, ooh, how galactic is this guy? So anyway, go on. Yes. And, and I'm also very earthy at the same time. So I can also have very earth-like uh, conversations. My souls just had very many experiences through many incarnations. And I just happened to be able to recall and bring a lot of those experiences into this life. Not everyone has that capacity. So I think when people go through an awakening process and all of a sudden they're, they're having access to the invisible realms, that they get so excited that they want to tell everyone and, and share every single thing. And that might not be the most compassionate thing to do because that other person, be it a family member or a friend, may not be quite ready to receive that radio signal yet. And it might be flooding their you know, system and into overdrive. So then the, the best way to go about it in an incremental way, because I'm all about incremental immersion. You know, I mean, just my coming out story, I did it with the mail first, and then I did it step by step. I love step by step. I'm not into these roller coaster rides of of like. Boom, right? That's not me. And so I think one of the main steps is first find a community where you can express yourself safely and in a way that people get you. So you feel seen and heard and felt and all those wonderful things because they get you. Then you go, and if your family is super, super important to you, then you have to you have to trickle it in slowly, right? You need to have first a conversation about, like in the way when I talk about past lives when i when i lead workshops i have atheists in my workshop i have people that are like whoa i really believe in past lives but i always have a chat first where i go hey either way is fine i don't care if you're an atheist or if you're a buddhist or a hindu or a christian or however you see past lives let me tell you how past lives can work for you you can look at it as symbols like a dream and how it's playing out in your psyche. You can look at it like this. And so you give them options to make them not feel like if they don't agree with you, it's over. And I think oftentimes people jump straight to the like, hey, I'm coming out of the spiritual closet and da 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 I talk to aliens, I see ghosts and you know, I, I'm doing all this stuff. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Right, you're, <laughs> and, and, and then you go, okay, what do you think? like looking for this need to be validated. And if you're coming at it from that place, that's not really a conversation. So you're kind of setting yourself up to fail. <laughs> so I, I, in my TEDx talk, I talk about five steps to renegotiate a family contract. And the first step, right, is about acknowledgement. So you have to acknowledge what the other person thinks about it, what their, what their opinions are. You also have to acknowledge before they even speak how they might even feel about it even if it is very different to, to how you would feel about it. And if you can acknowledge that, you will start to find the correct language to talk to them. You got you to gotta talk to people how, where they're at, right? <laughs> and that's compassion. That's really the practice of compassion. Perfect. It's perfect. Right? Yeah. I, I want to reiterate what you just said then. 
when you acknowledge people for where they're at, then you will find the correct language that will speak to them. I think that that's what you said. But that that's absolutely spot on. Yeah. You have to first ask their, like, what do you think about it? What's your opinion? You know, tell me what you think. And and then once you've like entered into their world, right, their headspace, then yeah, language comes that you can present your point of view from a way that they can comprehend. They might not agree, but they'll get it. Yeah. And then the second yeah. step to the acknowledgement is naming the emotional state. Because let's say, let's go with this example of I, I agree with some principle or belief and then they don't agree with it. And you see this in really great uh, reconciliation types of gatherings or great debates where people can agree to disagree. Now, you can only agree to disagree in, an, in, in a compassionate way if each party can be very clear about how it makes them feel. So let's say, let's just use this past life example, for example. I say like, oh my goodness, I really believe in past lives because, and I explain to you, you know, I tell this whole story about the Mongolian princess. And then I tell you how it makes me feel. It makes me feel more. And then now I go naming my emotional state. Now, this is where people get very confused because they don't actually name a true emotion. They name an opinion, which is a thought. And if I don't name a true emotion, then you're not going to empathize with everything I just told you. So I'll say something like you to you, Karin. I feel really safe now knowing that I've gone through many, many lifetimes experiencing this theme of rebellion. And now I feel more at ease, right? Safety at ease. These are all physical things that we know and we can feel. That might not necessarily be a, an emotion, but it is a sensation that I'm describing, right? So you can name an emotion, you can name a sensation uh, the, to put it into context. And now you go, you know, you're the listener and you're thinking like, oh, wow, that person feels safer. They feel more at ease. They feel more expressive. You know, I might even say that. Like, I feel more expressive, more creative now, knowing that I've had such a long, 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 long life. Now, if you disagree, you might go in your head like, wow, I don't agree with this principle of reincarnation. However, that person feels more safe, at ease, and more expressive. So who am I to judge, right? So then you might then start, as a person who disagree, to have a conversation about how you feel about what I feel. And when we, because we all know what these feelings feel like within ourselves. We just get there in different ways because of the different belief systems we have. Once you can start having a conversation like that, then you can get to a point of, oh, okay, I agree to disagree. It's it, you got to be curious, you know, you got to be curious about how other people feel and their experiences, even if you don't really understand how they get there. And if you can get to that place of curiosity, that's when something magical starts to happen. And that's really the spiritual work. It, because, you know, I, like when you were talking about the, the whole, the, the polarized split of, should I do this or should I not do that? Medically speaking, right? I got that a lot during the lockdown. Should I do this? Should I do that? I can't tell you what to do, right? I can help guide you to make the most aligned decision for you. Because my, my whole spiritual path is not stepping into the, the poles of this or that, the dualistic like, oh, God, I'm in this band camp or, or, or that one, right? The, the highest thing to do is to accept all the choices and be okay with 
Because I know people who are like, oh, I'm not friends with you if you do that. And they are, these are quote unquote spiritual people. And it's like, well, where's the practice of compassion? Oh, I can't. Uh, you're just replacing your human ego for a spiritual ego. <laughs> it's like, oh, I can't be around these people because they've, they've done this. I mean, I, I've seen this with vegans. Oh, I can't be friends with meat eaters. It's like, wow, okay. You've just limited right. or range as yeah. a human, as a soul. Yeah. Absolutely. Spiritual ego. You've just placed yeah, human ego and spiritual ego. I've, I, I used to see that a lot, you know, but coming back to that, I want to come back to something that you said about your parents. You said that your parents loved you so much that they demanded that you fit into their box because they felt like their box would keep you safe. And I think that that's the issue. Um, I think that, you know, going back to what I said about my friend and her very strict doctor father coming around and, you know, embracing his gay son and loving him and bringing him back into the family after after disowning him, <laughs> disowning him until he fixes himself, uh, that, you know, we all want to feel that love. And I think that acknowledging the love in others, like I know that you, I know that you, you want this of me because you love me. And I know that your, your love is stronger than what you demand me to be. And just like connecting through that love, regardless of our difference of opinion. Uh, yeah. I And I think that's so true because I can see now that my mom, my dad want me to be safe. They want yeah. me to live a safe and fulfilled life. They just see a different way for me to have that life. Yeah. Right. They just see a different. And, and the thing is, it's not really their life to live. And I, 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 I can appreciate that they want me to feel safe and yeah. to, to experience a fulfilled life, yeah. but I'm going to do it in my own way. And yeah. that's where I have to draw the line. Yeah, Thank yeah. you for that. Right. Thank you, mom and dad for wanting to be safe and fulfilled. However, I need to find that in my own way. Yeah. yeah. Not your way. You know, th this happened to me over the you know last couple of years because my daughter and I had a different opinion about the rollout of an allopathic treatment. And because I put my point of view across, she stopped talking to me. And then when she started talking to me, I knew she would. I knew she'd come around. She might not come around to my point of view, but I knew she'd start talking to me like she blocked me on Facebook and Instagram and stopped talking to, stop answering my calls. And people are like, are you upset? Are you upset? And I'm no, she'll come around. You know, it'll take, it, it took about eight months. But when I did have the discussion with her, I said, can't you see that I gave you my point of view because I love you, because I wanted to keep you safe? And she said, no, I couldn't see that. All I could see was that you were um, a fear mongerer. You were fear mongering and I didn't want to hear it. That's what she said. But um, But then we sort of sorted it all out and she's here now and it's all good again. But yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting points of view, how they create so much, you know, splitting, so much um, uh, pain in the world, really, over points of view. Over, over Points of views are really just belief systems and belief belief systems live in the astral. They live in the mind. And so the beliefs really are like clothes. You can change them. You can wear black one day and wear pink the other day. Right. Mm -hmm. And and that's where people are getting stuck up on on uh, feeling the sense of animosity or whatever it is towards another person. And and some people just might need some time. And that's just their process to kind of go, oh, wait a minute. You're just wearing black and I'm wearing pink. 
that's okay. You know, is, is it okay? And then you have to, and some people have to go into this process of like, wait, is it okay? And all the spiritual work is about embracing differences <laughs> and, Absolutely. and space and time to just have their inner struggle, whatever they're going through, just let them have it. Right. And I think that's such a great way that, you know, the way that you just articulated that you gave her space and people asked you, are you upset or like, no, you just give her space to, to do what she needs to do. And then we'll come back when we come back together. Yeah. And that might take eight months for some people on certain topics. It might take me this whole lifetime or many lifetimes with me and my parents, who knows, but I have to be very uh, okay with that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think the thing I was most upset about was she blocked me on Facebook because I couldn't see what she was, you know, getting up to. Not that she actually posts too much on Facebook uh, and Instagram, but I have a few Facebook accounts. So I would go to the other accounts and she didn't block me on the other account. <laughs> that was funny because, you know, a, par a parent wants to know what their kid's getting up to. It's like, yeah, but uh, it's it's all good now. What was I going to say? I was going to say something back to the spiritual contract. I had this gorgeous girl on the show. She's been on a few times. I'm trying to think of her name. Uh, Indian girl. And we had a similar conversation, gay Indian girl. So she grew up and the parents wanted to, you know, arrange marriage. And we were talking about tradition and we were both laughing and said tradition is um, peer pressure from dead people. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious because, um, I, you know, I see people like you, the renegades, and it happens in every generation, as moving forward the evolutionary process of the psyche because we get so fixed and stuck into the rules of how life is. And with each generation, there is more freedom, more awareness, more freedom. I definitely agree. You know, it's, it's generational. A lot of the ways in which we transform tradition and there are certain generations are, I mean, remember Pluto rules sex, death, rebirth, and how we transform. And so we kind of incarnate in different clumps, depending on, and I come from the generation that challenges the way that we view sex, death, and rebirth. So sexuality is part of that, right? And if you look at the queer movement 20 years ago and where it is now, it's so much more progressive. Right. And then where it was, Right. Yeah, Even exactly. I was just watching Queer as Folk, which was a show in the early 2000s. Right. And now they revamped it. And it's now Queer as Folk from 2022. And it's a very different kind of queer experience from when I was growing up to young queer kids now. Now everyone's talking about, oh, well, I, I don't want to feel engendered. I was actually I had a dream last night about gendering that even like this whole principle of being gendered at, at the hospital, right? you are this or you are that. I mean, it's a very big topic in America. It is. Queer community because, well, your soul is genderless, right? Absolutely. And it's actually it's a very uh, cosmic conversation when we're talking about non-binary uh, expressions of self through gender or, gen or not being named a gender. Exactly. And I was born in a time when this was not in the forefront of our consciousness. Mm -hmm. and, and if I think about it, it's like, oh, okay. Well, we're just having more cosmic conversations and queerness happens to just be a, a way in, in, in how people are expressing their cosmic self. Because exactly. to not be limited by 
uh, a female gender or a male gender means you're not being limited by the expectations of what it means to be a good girl and a good boy. Yeah. Right? And being yeah. a good girl means you got to be, you know, docile and cook and clean, like all these things that my mom still holds onto very, very dearly as this 50s housewife mentality my mom loves, right? Um, it, it, that's her idea of what it means to be, uh, you know, a woman. A girl. Right? And then a boy, you know, you, you got to be the breadwinner. My dad still holds on to these values, you know? Um, you got to provide all these things. Now, if you don't have those, you know, because of you, you don't identify as any of these genders, what you're saying is, I don't identify with the expectations that society has placed on me. Mm-hmm. I am breaking these soul contracts that have existed for thousands of years, and I'm creating something new. Exactly. And so of course, that is going to create a lot of resistance, because people are like, Oh, no, what do you mean? You're just a boy and you're a girl. It's like, it should just be that. It should just be black and white. That's all people are saying. Let's just be okay in our black, white thinking. And so you can look at the soul contract of all queer people on the planet as a catalyst for creating a shift in consciousness in how we think about black, white, binary thinking. Exactly. And that's, that's another way to look at the queer struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, whether you're, it's, it's not just gay, lesbian now. There's all these other letters there because there's so many different expressions of divine love and how people are choosing to express their human life. Yeah. And, and that's what all these, you know, little labels are. Now, at the end of the day, I don't care what you call me. You can call me a he, she, they, it. Because <laughs> for me, my soul is not attached to my gender or my body or like the any identity. Of, yeah. Right. The identity of it. You, you can call me whatever you want. <laughs> you know, for some people, it's not the case because they need they need that they're, they're on this journey of I need to have a more solid identification with my human self first. And then as they evolve in a more, uh, in, in, in a spiritual outlook, they might start to realize like, oh, it's all just a fun Leela. That's what the, the yogis call the cosmic play, Leela. Exactly. It's a big cosmic play. Leela, yeah. And, yeah. and we can put on wigs and hats and different clothes and, and be whoever we want to be in that moment. And that's what's really beautiful. Uh, and I think that's where humanity is moving towards. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I had this guy on the show, uh, Samuel Chong, a Chinese guy lives in, where does he live? In America. But he became obsessed with the Thaiuba prophecy, which was a channel, which was a book by a French Australian guy who was abducted. To, it was first called Abducted to the Ninth Planet. So he was abducted by aliens and taken to another planet. And um, the category of the planet was a ninth category planet. And uh, Earth is a first category planet so in our consciousness evolution but these beings they were humanoid they were physical they were about eight to nine foot four they were hermaphroditic they were hermaphroditic so they were both male female sex and I thought that that was amazing so the evolution of the physical body and the spiritual body is to bring the separation of gender back into oneness again yeah and also in the the mythologies, even on this planet, you look at the yogic uh, pantheon. There's there's the embodiment of Shiva and Shakti together mm-hmm. in Arda Ishvara, who is the who is a hermaphrodite god, mm-hmm. a goddess or deity, right? And so you right. see that actually through some Native American and Indigenous cultures as well, where there is this genderless expression of 
of the divine, where carries qualities of the male and the female physical form because we are the yin yang we are walking yin yang symbols mm-hmm. right and so you might be let's say yang uh you know in a masculine form on the external but you also have yin qualities in your internal and in way you feel the way that you think right and and then the ultimate embodiment of that would be a physical form that has both and so you see this actually across many of the mythologies that you know so this is not a foreign concept to 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 have the integration of the both it's not just alien it's also very earth yeah absolutely oh johnson it's been fabulous i've loved this conversation i think it's an important conversation because i see it everywhere i go you know especially in the spiritual community people have spiritual awakenings and I've had so many people on the show like Karen who have been so entrenched in that mainstream world and then they've had like a kundalini awakening or a death experience. You know, I put out a book called Awakened by Death because I feel like death is such a catalyst for our spiritual evolution to awaken us to what else, who, who you know, our multi, multi-dimensional self. And, um, and once you move into a new frame of mind, a new expanded reality, your old world, you don't fit into the old world anymore. So I, I feel like it's an important conversation to have. That's why I wanted to put you on the show. I thought you, you just expressed it so beautifully. So thank you so much. Any pearls of wisdom you'd like to give us? What kind of pearls of wisdom? Well, I really love what you just said about death, that everything is about consciously dying. Another way to think of it is consciously letting go because we all go through different chapters in our lives and we can think of ourselves like that. Like each chapter, for one chapter to end, that chapter has to die. Now, you can let it die uh, in a way that is not conscious or you could do it through a rite of passage. And that's what the shamans have done time and time again. Everything is marked by a conscious rite of passage. You go through puberty, there is a celebration in the village, and there is something that marks, symbolically speaking, that marks the change from adolescence into adulthood. There is um, there's this uh, culture in um, the Vanuatu people, right? And they did this beautiful process where the, the mothers throw away, actually, the the belongings of the young um, boys when they come into puberty and then they tie them with this vine and they throw it like a bungee vine and they throw them off the bridge as a symbol of them uh, not fearing what's to lie ahead. You know, now you're going to step into your, your adulthood, not in fear and let go of the, the the childhood possessions, right? Every culture has something different and I, and it's, it's a very conscious ceremony. And we, as a modern society in urban environments, have lost a lot of ceremonies. We only have birthdays where people just get really drunk. So it's not a conscious celebration. We have weddings. We don't really have like what the pagans used to do, where they'd have the hand fasting every 13 moons to renegotiate their vows. That's another way of looking at renegotiating soul contracts, where people went, okay, well, I'm not the same as I was 13 months ago. So how do I love you now? let's let's find different ways to express our loves love and if it's not happening then they might you know you might separate right it's conscious there that was a right that happened you have funerals is another big rite of passage however we only do that at death but we have many funerals during our life where we are no longer that same person and so we can think of every big shift like i work with a lot of people who are 
going through like a divorce. I don't know why, but it just seems to be, that's a death. That's like a funeral. And it's because there's, there's a clash of differences or whatever it is, or someone spiritually in the partnership starts to have these, like what you say, awakening experiences. And the other one is now refusing to, to step into that, or they can't quite see it just yet or whatever it is. And it causes a separation or, you know, all types of malfunctions. It's a consciousness thing. That's why people separate. The consciousness is one's moving this way and one's kind of there. And, and that's okay. And then we have to learn to create a rite of passage to, to separate because the soul speaks in symbols. The soul's not literal. And so that's, that's kind of how we have to, to work. Like we have to find more conscious ceremony in, in our busy modern lives. And that's, that's really the only way we can move forward, which is why I love doing retreats, you know, because <laughs> it's because we get to do a lot of ceremony. Where do you do your retreats? I actually have one in Bali coming up. Oh, and nice. so I love going to Bali because it's such a shamanic energy. And that, yeah, land. yeah. In I Ubud, go, do you go up to Ubud? I go up to Ubud. I yeah. use a center there that's really beautiful. And I go to Bhutan. B- nice. Bhutan is um, a, a beautiful land. The mountains are stunning. And the Tibetan Buddhists are very ceremonial, actually. The, the core of it, it's, it's quite shamanic. And um, I, I do some retreats in Europe, like Greece and all types of places. I've done retreats in Thailand, Nepal. It really just depends. I'm going to Peru again next year, end of next year, 23, uh, 2023. So all types of, of places. There's something about being in, in the energy of land, like uh, of a different land from your own, where you start to receive transmissions yeah. of, of energies that speak to you. You don't know why you know what you know in some places. I remember when I was in India, I all of a sudden just knew these old Vedic chants. It just yeah. came this. And I'd just be sitting there and people were like, how long have you been studying this for? I'm like, Never. I just landed. I heard it in my dreams. I'm chanting it. I don't know how I know what I know, but it just comes from the land. And it's there's so something very beautiful about travel. Yeah, I, I remember it's past life as an Indian. I remember I went to see an Indian guru here years ago. And he expected me to know how to sing an Indian. And I'm like, what part of me looks like I know how to sing an Indian Hindi? You know, like, look at me. Do I look like I know how to sing an Indian? But I think that he saw me, you know, like in a past life, because uh, 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 his wife kept going, no, 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 no. Like, you're looking at the wrong life. You know, <laughs> look at this blonde girl. She's not, she's not speaking Indian. But yeah, it's like, yeah, you hit, you hit those past life memories as you travel to these different lands, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I'll have to check out your retreats. They sound divine. Bali. Gorgeous. I love Bali. Love Bali. Johnson, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been so beautiful. Well, thank you, Karen. Thanks so much for having me. It's been such a joy talking to you. How wonderful to chat with Johnson today. Fascinating, fascinating character. I knew he would be. It's a such a common story for many of us with our generational differences as the next generation comes in and we think differently. Do we bring the generation with us? Sometimes no, sometimes no. I remember Esther Hicks said, you know, the way the world evolves is the old grumpy ones die away and the new sparky ones with their new ideas move into a new world. So sometimes people are never going to change their mind about how we're supposed to live our lives. But eventually humans have very short lives. They'll leave the planet And the new ideas will take hold and become the norm. And then the next generation will come and they'll come with more new ideas. 
<laughs> which will challenge the norm. But the norm is always being challenged, isn't it? There's a constant evolution and what we're going through in the shift in human consciousness on our planet at the moment is challenging them more now than ever before. There's like an acceleration, a speeding up of shift and change. And um, I love what he said about how the gay community has just been challenging the idea of the separation of the sexes. When we're spirit, of course, we are no gender. And so the whole gay movement over the last, you know, how long has it been? Well, there's always been gay people. I suppose it came out in the 60s, maybe in the 60s, became more of a thing. And we're all judging that, you know, humans just love to judge. Just We just love to judge, don't we? Instead of ex accepting. But I really feel like that was just the lead up to as we join our cosmic brothers and sisters, that judgment that we've had on humans. Are you gay? Are you straight? Are you black? Are you white? What religion are you? I'm going to judge you based on your religion. And if you're an atheist or now you're a spiritual awakening, but all that judgment we've been sorting out over the last what 100 years or so in preparation for meeting our cosmic brothers and sisters, because they're going to be completely different. You know, can you imagine meeting 10 foot prey mantis? I mean, I don't know about that. Like think about all the life forms in the cosmos and the way they look and the way they think humans have to get a handle on judgment and criticism before we can meet our cosmic neighbors yeah so the the generation with their you know the new generation with their um, strange ideas that challenge the norms and the status quo that's what we're doing we're challenging um, it's an evolutionary process yeah just loved chatting with Johnson he's doing some great things and he's here in Sydney so I might catch up with him a bit later he's got some retreats happening in Bali next year he was saying or this year or maybe next year next year we're at the end of the year now and he was talking about these cultural rituals that we have like Christmas and and funerals and weddings and birthdays I'm for the first time having a ritual tonight actually I've got to run and buy some more food for the first time in Australia well for me anyway I'm celebrating Thanksgiving because I think that that's a beautiful ritual to give thanks to to have a to have a night or a celebration of gratitude I know that there's a whole history behind it in the states I was talking to my tribe online yesterday and they were saying in Canada that they um, celebrated in October and in the US, in mainland USA, they celebrated in November. But Australians, we don't celebrate it ever, actually. And I thought it's such a lovely thing to celebrate. So tonight we're doing Thanksgiving dinner at my place. <laughs> we're inviting a couple of Americans and a few Aussies and we're going to yeah, do the whole Thanksgiving ritual. I think it's a beautiful ritual to do. So thanks again for listening and watching and sharing the shows and uh, pressing that like button and all that stuff I say. And there's always a donation button. If you're receiving a lot of from these shows, you can always, you know, show your support for the shows by um, sending us a donation through the PayPal link. And uh, the show is up on various platforms. So if you are listening on a platform which is not the mainstream platform, let me know. Send me a comment. Press that like button because I'm trying to find audiences on different platforms. Thanks again. Remember, uh, I think I talked about who's coming in. Jasmine's coming into the Inner Sanctum in December. Breatharian, check her out. Check out the show I did with Jasmine. Beautiful Enlightenment Ascension teacher. And I'm there once or twice a week. If you want to meet me in the Inner Sanctum, just go to karenswain.com slash Inner Sanctum, pop your email in and, and I'll send you the Zoom links. And remember, check out the book Awakened by Death if you haven't already. Thanks again. Bye for now. Thank you.